Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. And welcome to another episode of Say Why to Drugs. I'm Dr. Susie Gage, and you probably know that by now if you've listened to some of these. Thank you to everyone who got in touch about the last episode, which was uh, first ever Ask Me Anything. It seems like you guys really liked it, and I really enjoyed recording it, as I think I said at the time, which is handy because I am going to do another one right now. And the reason for that is uh, when this actually launches, I'm going to be uh, probably somewhere halfway over the Atlantic. I'm recording this now the day before I fly out to Washington DC for a conference and I won't be back before it uploads. So it's I've already got questions left over from last time and I haven't got another episode lined up for the moment but I've got lots of things in the pipeline. People I'm hoping to speak to, a few more episodes about specific drugs. So there will be lots more coming, it's just time-wise this hasn't quite worked out. But given that I only managed to get through half the questions last time, this seems like a great idea. And in all honesty, I probably didn't need to tell you any of that. I could have just done the second half of the questions and left it at that. But I thought you might be interested in my travel plans. Not really. I'm slightly nervous about uploading a podcast while I'm unavailable on the internet, just in case something goes wrong. But it'll probably be fine, won't it? So without further ado, here's the second half of where you guys say why to me and I answer your questions. Okay, so the first question, well, the next question that I didn't quite get to on my list from last time is, I don't know who it's from, but it's, what more can the science community do to highlight the lack of evidence-based decision-making by government in regards to not just drugs, but also to other areas of public policy? And this is a really interesting question and something that I've thought about quite a lot. So when I used to write for The Guardian, I wrote an article about um, how politicians need to think about evidence-based policy and how you can take ideas of how to test things out from things like epidemiology, um, how we design trials and that kind of thing could very easily be applied to policies. But I think it's also important to um, acknowledge that policies aren't just based on evidence and there's lots of other factors that go into it as well and it'd be quite naive for me to just say yes the science says this so that's what everyone should do 
Having said that, I think it's something that government, and I use government in terms of the political system rather than talking about a particular political party here, but there are lots of schemes to try and get scientists into working with civil servants and working with government and that kind of thing. Some of my colleagues, um, friends who I used to work with in Bristol, have taken part in schemes where they get paired with either a politician or a civil servant and you or they have gone in to work in Parliament. They've seen how policies get drawn up, how they get made. And this can relate to drug use. So lots of policies around alcohol and tobacco, for example, but also um, that could equally apply to illicit drugs as well. Now, in terms of what the science community can do, I think engaging with those schemes is something. Um, but also the government are always putting out... Co- well, again, I use government in terms of... Westminster is always putting out or very like loads and loads of times putting out calls for evidence so um, for example they have committees that look at drug use committees that look at alcohol and tobacco committees that look at all sorts of things and um, social media screen time all of this kind of thing they do put out calls for evidence and you can submit evidence consultation and that kind of thing and I think it's really important that scientists who do work in relevant fields actually engage with that and submit their evidence to these sessions potentially even go and speak i've got colleagues who've been to speak uh to various different groups about the thing that they're expert in and that kind of thing and also i think as i say politics and or policies rather aren't made just based on evidence but public opinion has a massive impact so another way that scientists can advocate i'm not sure that's the right word but can get their evidence out there isn't by talking to politicians necessarily but by talking to the media and by talking to the public and getting their evidence and research out there finding out what the public opinion is about an issue potentially educating people and maybe that might make people change their minds about certain things for example drug regulation being presented with evidence about what works in other countries for example and that kind of thing But as public awareness changes, then the public mood for policy change also changes. So things can be influenced in that way as well. And obviously, scientists have to stick within the evidence that we have and have to be quite sort of clear and honest about um, where the limitations are in this evidence and all that kind of thing. But the public are quite interested in that. That's something that I certainly found when I was writing uh, my science blog for The Guardian, is that actually articles that sort of took a headline about, say, cannabis and really dug into the nuance of the research and presented the complexities, those ones, those articles did really well because people are really interested in that. And this idea that we have to dumb down when we talk to the public, frankly, I think is absolute nonsense. Don't use jargon that you need certain sort of studies to understand, but that doesn't mean you can't explain a concept that is quite complicated because people aren't idiots. Most people aren't idiots. Uh, So you can explain quite complex concepts to people who don't have the same specialism as you, as long as you don't use sort of exclusionary language, if that makes sense. Right, I think I've waffled enough about that. The next question is from Stephen, and it's which, if any, countries are leading lights in the research and handling of drug understanding and abuse? Now, a couple of countries really spring to mind here. Portugal is a country that often gets 
brought up in terms of decriminalization and certainly when Portugal decriminalized drug use um I think it's nearly 20 years ago now that this happened they were in a bit of a problem in terms of problematic drug use and changing sort of reconceptualizing drug use and drug problems as a health problem rather than a criminal problem allowed them to sort of tackle problematic use in a different way and rather than criminalizing people helping people to get treatment and support and it seems to have been incredibly effective but in terms of research and handling of drug understanding and abuse rather than sort of just decriminalizing I think the country really that's been for decades leading the way is Switzerland and Switzerland's had some really progressive policies around particularly heroin so in terms of similar kind of things really of providing support and help for people rather than criminalizing but also allowing the prescription of heroin to treat people with heroin problems rather than methadone which isn't the same in terms of giving you the same sort of satiation from withdrawal if that makes sense so prescribing someone heroin but giving it to them in a environment where you can monitor them and that kind of thing can be really helpful in terms of treating and again this is slightly out of my area of expertise but this is from speaking to other people about this and it's something that I think was touched upon in the episode about addiction that I've done previously and also the episode with Bristol Drugs Project and the other thing Switzerland did very early on compared to other places is provide spaces safe injection spaces provide clean equipment for people who use heroin in particular and this can drastically reduce the problems that go alongside injecting drugs so things like the risk of uh, passing on contagious diseases uh, such as hepatitis and HIV and maybe this will surprise you but in some ways the UK is one of the leading lights and I'm talking here kind of more about things like e-cigarettes so this is something that Linda and I talked about on the episode about e-cigarettes that was from a few weeks ago now and compared to other places in the world the UK has taken a very progressive view towards e-cigarettes and their potential use as a harm reduction tool and I think that's something that we should be proud of but the research is going along with it so that if the evidence changes then we can react to that and inform policymakers and that sort of thing so I think that's quite important that the research has to go alongside the policy change or the sort of understanding. Okay, the next question is from Mick and it is, what's the most progressive piece of drug legislation of the last 50 years? And what's your favourite piece of research which seemed to get ignored for seemingly no good reason? Now, I think I've already talked quite a lot about legislation in this episode, so I'm going to leave that bit of the question but in terms of favorite piece of research that gets ignored I don't know I'm gonna slightly answer a different question and be cheeky here but I think rather than like one bit of research can't change 
the world. One paper isn't going to completely overturn everything that we've ever known, except in incredibly rare circumstances. And generally, if a paper claims to do that, it probably doesn't. And one of my favourite examples of that, of a paper that, well, it's in fact a few papers, they're really interesting, but have had far sort of too much weight put on them in terms of their importance, is a study called Rat Park. Now, this isn't to say that Rat Park isn't a great set of studies. I really like it. But I have heard loads of stuff about Rat Park. So for people who don't know what Rat Park is, the way it's often described is rats in cages will self-administer heroin um, until they die. Whereas if you put rats in a sort of rat paradise where they've got other rats around them and all sorts of things to do and things to play with, they won't touch heroin. They're not interested anymore. And... (laughs) That's not quite what Rat Park found. This was conducted in the 70s in uh, Simon Fraser University, which is in Vancouver, by a guy called Bruce K. Alexander. And he was sort of looking at the way that animal studies of addiction were conducted. And the rats in these studies were put in tiny little cages without any, like without being able to see other rats, without really having anything to do. So he designed a... (laughs) a sort of enriched environment for rats to live in and he wasn't the only person doing this kind of research at the time there were other researchers as well who were also interested in this so the way it's often portrayed is that Bruce K Alexander kind of changed the world in terms of thinking about this kind of thing but actually there were other people doing this at the same time as well so that's not saying it wasn't a great idea but it wasn't only his idea there were other people doing it too um so what he did was he put some rats in isolated cages and then some rats all together in rat park. And yeah, he did find that there was a difference in the amount of uh, morphine-enriched water that the rats in the different groups drank. But it wasn't the case that the rats in rat park didn't touch it at all. And in fact, it wasn't the case that the rats in isolation just constantly... Um, took all of the morphine infused water in fact he had to um, do this quite strict regime to get the rats dependent on the morphine enriched water part of which involved um, not giving them any other water just giving them this morphine enriched water for about 56 days and this was such an extreme part of the experiment that rats in both conditions so rats in isolation and rats in rat park actually died during this period of the experiment two rats in each um, but there were also there were other differences between the way there were differences between the way he measured how much morphine water had been consumed between the isolated rats and the rats in rat park and this is always a little bit of a worry when you conduct these kind of when you conduct an experiment you really want to be able to measure the um outcome in the same way in both your in both of your conditions otherwise differences that you see might just be because of those different methods of measuring and also the rats in rat park weren't separated by sex so there were in all likelihood, rat babies were happening in Rat Park. And obviously that might impact on how certainly the female rats might really impact on their behaviour. And from the papers, it's not really clear how this was taken into account. So all of this sounds a bit down in Rat Park, but it's not meant to be. It's just saying that often if you see a study held up as like completely revolutionising the field, it's probably worth going and having a look at the papers. And if you're really interested in this, um, I, along with Professor Harry Sumnall, who's a colleague of mine at Liverpool John Moores University, we wrote an article for the journal Addiction about Rat Park that was published uh, 
a month or two ago. So I'll put a link that here. I think it's open access. So hopefully you'll all be able to read it. And we're planning to write a blog about it as well, but we haven't got around to it yet because I'm supposed to be leading on it and I'm too busy. So sorry, Harry, if you're listening, (laughs) I will do it soon, I promise. So the next question is uh, from Michael and it's how do we combat stigma around substance use disorders? And this is a great question because actually myself and Harry Sumnall, who I've just mentioned, and Ian Hamilton and a few other people, so Ian Hamilton from York University, uh, we are really interested in this question and actually we are trying to um, conduct some research into into it at the moment. We're just trying to get some funding to be able to uh, run a study looking at this question. But there's quite a bit of evidence already that the language that we use can really impact on people's opinions about people who use drugs. So for example, where language that's kind of stigmatising, so things like addict or alcoholic or terms like that, or describing someone who's stopped using drugs as clean, which sort of automatically implies that before that they were dirty. When using this kind of language, people are more likely to believe that someone with drug dependence it's their fault or their choice that they've ended up um struggling and are more likely to endorse more punitive measures against that person rather than uh treatment necessarily and i find that really interesting it's like the language that we use really matters and it's something that i've really learned since doing these podcasts recently i've gone back and listened to some of the earlier podcasts and i'm i've definitely changed the way I talk about drugs and the way I talk about people who use drugs um, since I started doing this podcast. I mean, I'm not to say that I was awful at the beginning, but I really feel like I've learned a lot from doing this and from speaking to people about the podcast and from going and speaking in schools and going and speaking to other people. And it sort of took, I mean, I was quite surprised to see this research that how how influential language can be but maybe I shouldn't have been so the the question was really was more specific about how can we combat stigma around substance use disorders and language is part of it but it's only one part of it I think in order to to really combat stigma we need to increase empathy we need to reduce kind of othering and think that sort of drug dependence is something that happens to other people and I think maybe one of the best ways to to reduce this problem is to get rid of the kind of hypocrisy around alcohol and heavy alcohol use and in a way I think a term like alcoholic is quite problematic in that it's it creates a kind of us and them. It's saying, oh, well, I drink quite heavily, but I know I'm not an alcoholic, so I probably don't have a problem. Whereas actually, the more we understand about alcohol use, the more it becomes apparent that you don't have to be dependent on alcohol to have hazardous or problematic drinking or to be affecting your health and mental health from alcohol use. And given how popular alcohol is within certainly UK society and also lots of other societies too, understanding that and sort of thinking that it's none of us are necessarily that far from a problem. Not much in our lives would necessarily have to change to start, for example, drinking to cope or using another substance to to sort of deal with a difficult situation. And it's that kind of understanding that can give us a better empathy towards people who have ended up in that situation. 
I'm not necessarily sure I've explained that very well, but um, it's something that I find incredibly interesting. And hopefully when we get start to conduct our research, that might be a question that I'll be able to explore in more detail, maybe get one of my colleagues on the podcast to talk about why it's important to look at stigma and also to think about how to combat it. And actually, the next question ties kind of nicely into it. And that question is, is there such a thing as a functioning alcoholic? And I think, again, this is where the term alcoholic isn't necessarily that helpful. It doesn't have a medical definition. I think it used to, but these days alcoholic is kind of seen as such a nebulous term that it's not helpful. Now, having said it's not helpful... I have spoken to people who self-define as alcoholics or as having or having had alcoholism problems. And I can absolutely see, and the last thing I want to do is tell people how to self-define because that is absolutely none of my business. But if people feel that taking this identity can help them to stop from going back down that path, for example, or can help them to maintain their trajectory that they're on and maintain their recovery, then that's brilliant. But speaking to these people, they have said to me that there's a massive difference between self-identifying as something and having that identity put upon them by someone else. And I think that's why medicinally, or in terms of from treatment seeking, the term alcoholic isn't very useful. Now, can you be a heavy drinker and also function in society I think yes you can and I think we can see that we can see that people can be drinking in a damaging way but still maintain their jobs or still uh, maintain a family life when we talk about addiction we generally use a sort of vague definition that says that if it started to have an impact on your life then it's addiction like if you're changing your life to fit around substance or social or family ties are weakening or you're struggling with your job all these kind of things if your life in any aspect is suffering because of a drug then that could well be because you are dependent or addicted but is it possible to for those things not to happen and still be drinking harmfully? Yes, I think it absolutely is. And as I've just said, we know that alcohol can cause harms to health and mental health at a variety of different levels. Obviously, the severity of the harm will increase as the heaviness increases, but even drinking slightly more than the guidelines will increase your risk slightly of problems. Although it's worth saying that the current UK guidelines are related to a 1% increase in risk of health harm. So that is not a big increase in risk, but it is a substantial increase in risk if you think that's one in every hundred people who drink above the guidelines will suffer ill health because of it. Okay, so I'm just going to do one more question now and uh, it's a fairly short answer because it's a fairly straightforward question. But someone has asked me, in the podcast about psychedelics, I talked with Pip about doing a blind study with LSD, psilocybin and DMT. Was that just joking or is it something that you would actually consider? I think it would be really interesting to do because so the, the sort of background behind this is in that episode, we talk about psychedelics. People who use psychedelics often report different kinds of psychedelic experience on different substances. But due to the nature of psychedelics, they're so subjective that 
it's difficult to know whether this is because their expectation is different for different substances or whether the different substances really have a different effect. And so, I mean, it was joking when I said it, that um, if you took, if you found someone who had tried all three of those substances and you then gave them one of them so they knew they were going to be getting a psychedelic because I absolutely think that giving someone a psychedelic when they don't know they're having a psychedelic is incredibly reckless and stupid and dangerous but if they know that they're going to get a psychedelic but they don't know which one they're going to get would they be able to tell now these drugs have different onsets they have different lengths they potentially have different strengths but is there something about the actual trip itself that's identifiable I guess it's like when you do blind wine tasting which incidentally even professional wine people I don't know what the word is obviously professional wine people um when they are given uh wine without being able to see it or at so if they feel if they're given red wine that's cold or white wine that's at room temperature they're quite rubbish at being able to tell what it is or if they're given white wine with red food coloring in it or that sort of thing so much of our experience of taste in that instance or kind of intoxication is influenced by expectation and by other senses so I genuinely would be really interested to run that study however we get on to the difficulties of uh, you need licenses to be able to conduct this kind of research if you wanted to do this you'd probably need to get funding for it because you'd have to get the substances you'd have to get the home office license and I don't think it's I think there are other research that is more likely to get funded certainly so I would certainly not be able to do this research. If anyone who worked in a lab with a home office licence did want to do it and wanted to collaborate with me, I'd be absolutely delighted because I'm genuinely really, really interested in this kind of understanding of how expectation plays a role in intoxication. But I, yeah, unfortunately, there's no way that I could do this research. Oh, there we go. That was a short but sweet episode, but I hope that you enjoyed it. Good questions again. I think I probably will do more of these in the future. So if you have other questions, please keep sending them over to me. I'll collate them and keep them up for next time. Hopefully uh, in two weeks time, I will have managed to get some of these interviews that I've got planned to, uh, to happen. And if not, I will think of some other fun content. But until then, enjoy yourselves uh, (laughs) and um, I will speak to you all very soon. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.